0: Good evening, so thank you for letting me come and share with you again. It's a joy to be with you, and I was thinking, boy, in just a short time, I'm looking around, it's like, boy, I've had a chance to interact with almost all of you, Uh, a great number, if not just a brief discussion here in church, but for several of you, got to meet and eat with you as well, and what a blessing that is, so um, it's just a real joy this evening, I thought we would maybe all hop in my little plane and fly down Honduras. Is that, is that okay with you? <laughs> so that, that's what we're going to try and do um, for this next hour. And I'm going to welcome you into my class. So we're, we're all going to go to Meta, and um, I apologize to the ladies in the class. I, can't invite you, I cannot invite you biblically into my seminary class. But it made it we have a men's and a women's institute as well. And so we're going to have an institute class tonight because we certainly uh, men and women both can and should learn the theology of the word of God, because ladies, you're going to have opportunities to teach and to interact as well with other ladies and young people within the church. And so it's a uh, it's a good opportunity for us to do that. Uh, that being said, we're going to look at what we would call an, an, in our seminary theology one, and that is an introduction to theology through what we call prolegomena, which just kind of means the introductory, introductory information. And uh, beyond that, what we would call bibliology, I think we can all figure out what that is, the study of the Bible, and how we know uh, more about our Bible and that it is the Word of God and all those areas. And then also a little bit about theology proper. Theology proper is just that study of God himself, right, and his attributes in that area. But the basis of what we wanted to talk about tonight is, what is your source of truth? What is your source of truth? And, and we know the quick answer to that, right? The quick answer to that is this book right here, The Word of God. But sometimes I think we need to think through why that's the case. You know, why is that our source of truth? Why is it that these other things don't measure up? And um, so I thought we'd kind of talk through some of that this evening, and then we'll look at some scriptures to help support Uh, our perspective so we can defend what the Word of God says as really our soul, our only source of truth. Okay, so just beginning, (coughs) what is your source of truth? We're going to look at a few very well-known passages, not right here off the bat, but as we go a little farther. But there are are multiple common sources of truth, and we, we could bring up others. We could bring up other religious books that people use as sources of truth, and we could look at those and say, well, you know, those are Those are not helpful, and and they have their own area of errors, etc. But I thought what we'd do is look at some of the common ones that uh, we face, okay? Some of the common ones that we may face in interacting with other people uh, around us, whether it be tradition or experience or reasoning, uh, specifically. And then we're going to look at uh, what the Bible has to say about general revelation, because there's a very poor understanding of what that is within many churches today, many who would profess to be like-minded with, with us here, uh, but aren't necessarily as like-minded as they may think, especially in this area of the doctrine of general revelation. And then again, we're going to finally look at, of course, special revelation, what does the Bible have to say about the Word of God itself. So we're going to ask ourselves, what, what is the Bible or what, what can we learn about tradition, you know, tradition? Uh, when we think about tradition, what what is tradition? I, this is going to be interactive. So what is tradition? What we're used to doing. There you go. Yeah, what we're used to doing. I like that. And the song, I think of the song from Fiddler on the Roof, right? Tradition. <laughs> and they, you know, singing about tradition, how important tradition is. And uh, there are some people that consider tradition as a source of truth, especially when it comes through the catholic church you're saying that with a small c okay a small c because we understand if you look back in the history of the church that in the beginning of the church in the first several hundred years the period of the of the the fathers of the church as they're sometimes called there were some varying opinions on god and on christ and, and doctrines of, of god and christ and so the true Church, the Orthodox Church, came to be known as the Catholic Church, okay, with a small c, we'll say, because it really be, it really was the, the Catholic Church. Catholic just meaning the Church Universal, okay, and, and, it, and it came along with the Church that followed along in the teachings of the Apostles. Of course, we know that over time, that all changed, and it changed with errors in doctrine, it changed with... Uh, perspective of what is the church, if we were to study our ecclesiology, which is the theology of the church, okay, because that word comes from the Greek word ecclesia, which is the word for church, we can understand, well, boy, you know, early on it was fine, but then it started deviating off, and so commonly we'll use that phrase the Roman Catholic Church right uh, today, and uh, when we think about the Roman Catholic Church, they certainly depend much upon tradition. And uh, because tradition to them gives authority to the Roman Catholic Church because they are the traditional church or the church of tradition, right? If we look at, again, our historical theology, which is that theology that uh, helps us understand how the doctrines were understood over the history of the church, that uh, they would look at that and say, well, you know, we're the true church, and because of that we have the authority, and we all know this, many of you maybe grew up Catholic, and uh, understand that, okay, well, you know, we have the succession of the apostles, from, especially from Peter, and that gives us the authority, and so therefore we have that right. And so they would put, and they would call this tradition, in fact, what in their own terminology, they would consider the Bible as the inanimate rule of faith, Rule of faith, just a, a phrase that stands for authority. So if you ever hear that, rule of faith, that's a, that's a phrase that the church fathers used 1,500 years ago or more when they were talking about the authority. Well, who has authority? Well, who has the rule of faith or what has the rule of faith? So they would call the word of God the inanimate rule of faith, but then they would call the church the proximate rule of faith, the proximate rule of faith. And the proximate rule of faith, of course, is that authority that is closer to us when we have questions or we don't quite understand or we're not sure how to interpret the Word of God, well, they can step in with their authority equal to the Word of God, they would say, in the form of tradition, and they could tell us, they could explain to us, well, here's how you need to understand that passage. Well, As we know, that makes for a fairly convenient way for them to denounce anything that, as the the Protestants... Uh, would look at and say well we're not sure that you're understanding that passage correctly and of course their response would be but we are the church we are the catholic church the roman catholic church we have the authority we have the tradition we are the proximate rule of faith it is the pope and and the cardinals the bishops that have the authority to interpret scripture who are you who am i to think that we could understand what scripture says without the help of the church to help us Understand it and to translate it for us and to explain it to us, right? And so they would look at that as their role. In fact, if you go back through history, you can see that the Roman Catholic Church states that they determined the canon of Scripture through councils and and through the history of the church. They would say, yes, that was determined by the church. The church decided what is what are the books of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, what books are to be accepted. And of course, there, fifteen hundred years later or a thousand years later from that time frame. Uh, they also introduced the books of the Apocrypha, which was mainly just to support some of their, their doctrines. But they would say that they determined or established the canon. But we would say, no, God determines the canon. The church simply recognizes what God has determined. God determines the canon, not us. We, we cannot determine what the canon is. And we have uh, acknowledged through history that the canon are these 66 books, right? 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. But they would give that authority to the church. They would also say, like we mentioned, that the Roman Catholic Church determines the proper interpretation of Scripture through the church fathers, through church councils and even papal decrees, the decrees of the Pope, the Roman Catholic Church, through tradition, through the authority, the rule of faith, the proximate rule of faith of the Roman Catholic Church, they determine proper interpretation of what Scripture says. So if you say, fine, my authority is Scripture, well, yeah, the authority, the the Bible is an inanimate form of authority. But to really understand what it's saying, you need the help of the Church. That's why God left the Church, they would say. And they kind of have it, Backwards, because we would say no, the church is preaching the truth in as much as it is in accordance with the word of God, but they would say, well, the word of God is to be interpreted through the church. Uh, Also, they would say that the Roman Catholic Church is given equal authority to the Bible. They would say that the the church itself, especially the Pope, is inerrant and infallible, right? Without error, does not fail. And, and they would say that the decrees of the Pope, then, would be on par with what Scripture says. And it gives equal authority to the church through tradition as a source of truth to what the Word of God says, right, to what the Word of God says. But there are problems with that. There are problems with that. What are, what are some problems? Well, first of all, it lowers the authority of Scripture, just by a very, its very nature, it lowers the authority of Scripture, because if we were to understand the Word of God as our authority, right, any other form of authority would be beneath that, right? Whether that be the pastor and elders of the church, we submit to the Word of God. Whether that would be parents, they have authority But they have authority given to them by God as they submit to the Word of God. Their authority is better, obviously, when they submit to the Word of God. And so any authority would be beneath the authority of Scripture. But the authority of tradition, what does it do? It brings it down and says, well, the authority of the church, the authority of men is equal to, as the proximate rule of faith, is equal to the inanimate rule of faith, and therefore we have an equal level of authority. And so it lowers the authority of Scripture. It doesn't maintain a high view of Scripture. Sometimes we'll hear that phrase, a high view of Scripture. It's referring to situations just like this, where they would say, okay, tradition is on par with what the Word of God says. It also negates the perspicuity of Scripture. You guys know what the word perspicuity means? We hear it sometimes. It actually is very very simple word, and we we know maybe a better synonym for ourselves, and that's the word clarity, okay, the clarity, the clarity of Scripture. The Bible is clear, and so when the traditionists come along and say, no, you can't understand what the Bible says unless we interpret it for you, what they're saying is the Bible is not clear. They're saying you need our help because there are things that are just not clear, Okay, now we understand. There are some, Peter even said about Paul's writing, there are some things that this guy writes that are hard to understand, right? He said that. And it's true, there are some doctrines that are difficult to kind of understand. However, the Bible is very clear in what it says. You know, sometimes people don't want to accept it, and sometimes in our reasoning, and we're going to talk about that, sometimes it's a little difficult for us to, to fully get our minds around certain things. But it doesn't mean the Bible is not clear. The Bible is very clear in what it says. And when you study, especially when you know, when you study what the Word of God has to say, and, and some of us by God's grace have been blessed, we've been able to study some of the Greek and some of the Hebrew so that we can we can look at that. It doesn't put on us on any higher level, it's just we're just blessed to have that opportunity. But when you study even the grammar of the Bible, it's clear. Amen, brother? <laughs> it's clear. You know, it, there's there's no <laughs> you, you don't find yourself. Now, what is this really saying? No, it, it, it says it and it says it sometimes intense. It says it sometimes whether it's active voice or passive voice. You know, when God does something, it's in the passive. There, there's no confusion about that. When God when God says that he saves us or gives us faith or gives us our salvation through grace, it's in the passive voice. And we all know the passive voice means it's something that happens to us from outside of us. Right. It's clear clear as a bell. And so when they say, no, 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 you see, you need, you need the church to help you interpret the Word of God, they're negating the perspicuity of Scripture. They're negating the clarity of Scripture. They're saying that somebody, just a, a mere uh, person of the, of, of the, of the street, a, a lay person, cannot understand the Word of God, right? And of course, what does that do? It maintains their authority, it maintains their position, etc., right? Maintains their income and many other things. And so, it negates the persecutivity of, of Scripture. Also, it negates the individual priesthood of the believers, right? Because they say that, you know, you're the priest, you need to come and confess your sin to us, and, and, and that's the way that they would interpret Scripture. But the Bible makes it very clear about the individual priesthood of believers. What does that mean, the individual priesthood of believers? Well, very simply, what it means is, what happened when Jesus died on the cross? Between the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. You remember what happened? What happened? The veil, right? <sniffs> Tore in two. Why? You know, actually, yeah. We now have access into the very presence of God it's through the mediator, Jesus Christ, because it's through his, his um, I don't think it's a Spanish word, justicia, <laughs> <laughs> through his righteousness. Uh, we, have the, we have the opportunity to enter into the presence of a holy and righteous God. And so he is our mediator, but we have an individual priesthood, right, where we can enter into the presence of God. We don't need another man other than the man Jesus Christ. We don't need another priest to be that mediator for us to confess our sins to that person, to absolve our sins, or to tell us how much penance we need to complete in order to be pleasing to God. No. And so this whole concept of tradition negates the individual priesthood of believers, which goes against Scripture. And finally, it negates the autonomy of the local church. Right? It creates this whole hierarchical structure which negates your ability to function as a local church right? We understand scripture and our, again, our ecclesiology, what the Bible has to say about the church. We understand what the Bible has to say about the church. Yes, there is a church universal and the universal church is all those who have accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior, right? And all those who are truly born again, those who are truly saved are part of the universal church. But that universal church by and large is invisible, Okay, do you understand what I mean by invisible? By invisible, I mean it is not an organized structure that is visible as a universal church. There is not a central area, a central place, as some people would call the Vatican or Rome, where the universal church has its home base. No, the universal church is invisible in the sense that, well, it's invisible, we can see each other, we know, okay, believer in Christ. But the part of the church that is visible is what? It's the local church church, right? And the Bible is very clear about the functionings of a local church. When it talks about uh, sharing your gifts, right? And when it talks about serving one another through our spiritual gifts, through, through the ways in which God has, has blessed us, that only functions within a local body of believers, right? It's not going to function within a, a universal church. It's not going to function outside the church. It functions within a local church. The, the instructions in the Bible about elders and deacons, pastors and deacons, What's the context of that? It's the local church, right? There's no, there's no elder of the church universal. The Roman Catholics would say, yeah, that's the pope. But no, we have elders and, and, and pastors, the same thing, overseers, bishops. It's all the same office, different descriptions of the same office. It's within the local church, right? It's within the local church. And so this idea of tradition negates the autonomy of the local church. It negates uh, our... our Ability as a local church to function as a church and to make our own decisions because there's this whole hierarchy, and the bishops have to do what the pope says or the cardinals say, and then he tells the priest what to do, and the priest tells us what to do, and it all comes down in that structure, right? And so tradition is not a very good source of truth. It's not a very good source of truth uh, because men are not inerrant, men are not infallible, right? It's not the way that God designed it, it's against things such as the individual priesthood. Of, of the believer. It's against the autonomy of the local church. These things that the Bible tells us. Clark Pinnock, who is a man I don't necessarily recommend that you read or follow, because I, there's a number of areas that I, I don't agree with him in his theology. But he, he did he did, does have a very good quote in, a, in an article that he wrote called, How I Use the Bible in Doing Theology. And so I, I, I don't necessarily say, yeah, you should go read this guy. No, I, I probably wouldn't. But he says this. He says, tradition is a wonderful servant, but a poor master. What do think about that? In church, we have traditions, right? I mean, we sing our three songs or four songs every Sunday. We take the offering at this point in the service. We, you know, we have our traditions. Traditions are not necessarily in and of itself a bad thing. Tradition in and of itself, the tradition within the church is not necessarily a bad thing. You know, the way, the way we do church, the way that we have the Lord's Supper, you know, on a regular basis. Of course, that's a mandate from Christ. But tradition in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing. But what he says, it's a wonderful servant, but it's a poor master. It's a poor authority. It's not a good source of truth. It serves the church in many ways, he says, but it does not share the same plane with Scripture. We can't put tradition on the same plane with Scripture. It can and should be placed beneath the Bible and corrected when necessary by the biblical message when it becomes corrupted or complacent, and that 's very true. I think that 's well said by him in this particular area you know and that 's the problem with tradition it 's not a good source of truth. We need to understand where tradition falls beneath the authority of scripture okay experience, another possible source of truth, experience, and I put usually mystic because usually experience is is very mystical right that's what people are after they just want i just want something i want to see something feel something sense something uh, hear something i don't know i want to hear see listen to the voice of god directly instead of reading what god has to stay in his scripture there's a pastor by the name of hobart e freeman he's actually a charismatic preacher and he said the man with doctrine is at the mercy of the man with the experience that's very true It's very true. The man with the doctrine is at the mercy of the man with the experience. And here's why. We have our doctrines and we we adhere to what the Word of God says, our our theology, our doctrine, and what Scripture says. But then someone comes along and says, well, last night, while I was in my bedroom, three angels came into my room and spoke to me and told me that God wants me to do this. Okay. How are you going to refute that? Well, you, you... you, you can, and by saying, I don't think so, pal, you know, but I wasn't there. You weren't there, right? I don't know if three angels came to his room and told him anything, right? And so in that sense, the man with the doctrines at the mercy of the man with the experience, and they know it because it's all very subjective. We're, we're going to see that, and so that that just in and of itself creates a whole lot of problems, a whole lot of problems. First of all, An experience doesn't provide its own interpretation, okay? Whatever experience, it doesn't provide its own interpretation. I'm going to give you an example of that. And and what results from that is that interpretations are uh, subjective. They're very subjective, not objective, okay? I had a a, a lady and her husband. He's actually a pastor of a little church in a little rural village there in Honduras. And uh, they were brought to me for really some biblical counseling, uh, because she was not functioning very well because she was very afraid of demons. And their church in this little rural village, there was another missionary who was working with them, and he asked me, hey, would you be willing to talk with them? I said, sure, there's no problem, I'd love to. And so we, we got together a few times, and uh, they had been having church services with a charismatic church that was also in the town. And they were kind of just combining and having these mutual services. Well, with the influence of, of the charismatic church that came in, they were all up in arms about mystical things like the demons and, and, and you know, witchcraft and all of these things. And it started to work on this poor lady's heart and conscience, you know, the, one of the pastor's wives. You know, she's starting to be afraid. And so she's sitting in her house and she hears this sound. I don't know what the sound was, but up in the roof. And you know what her thought was? It's a demon it's a demon right her husband's thought was it's a cat <laughs> or, or maybe a bird right and, and and that's that's the example right there the example is it was an experience that she had she experienced a noise but experiences don't come with their own interpretation what was that it was a demon it was an angel it was god it was a cat it was a dog it was a bird right and if we counted around here i don't know how many people we have here let's say 30 40 people and we asked we could get 30 or 40 different opinions as to what that experience meant or was right because that saying it's a cat or what it was is one thing the second thing is what did it mean ah it was god trying to message me through that cat right or through that bird or it was God doing this? Or it was Satan doing that? Or it was a demon? Tr- we don't know, right? I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't know. And so experiences don't provide their own interpretation. And therefore, it introduces subjectivity. And everybody's opinion is up for grabs. Anytime you introduce subjectivity, especially in the interpretation of Scripture or in the interpretation of experience, you, you lose all sense of true meaning what we would call propositional truth because, well, this is what I think it means. Well, this is what I think it means. Well, what does that verse mean to you? Well, I don't know. I think it means this. Well, that's great, but, right? Really, what we want is objectivity. Objectivity. And when we understand what's called hermeneutics. Have you guys heard of that word, hermeneutics? Hermeneutics, just simply, you know, sometimes in every field you have these big words, and every field has them. You know, in the world of medicine, it's a different language, and in the world of computer science, it's a different language. I don't speak that language, you know, Uh, but, you know, some of you do, and we all have our big words. Hermeneutics just means rules, okay, and rules for understanding any book, okay, any book, and in this case, the Bible, because the Bible is what we're worried about here, right? And so in hermeneutics, our goal, what the rule says is our goal is to understand the author's intent in what they're saying, right? Because if you write me a letter, you're going to think about the words you use because you want to communicate a point to me, right? And so you're going to say, you know, dear Rob, uh, I want you to know that yada, 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 right? And you're going to choose the words wisely. You're going to choose the order, how you put it. You're going to choose the paragraph structure, the sentence structure, so that you can communicate something to me, right? My goal then as the reader of that text is to what? Is to try and understand, make sure I can understand what it is that you're trying to communicate. I need to understand what those words mean, I need to understand what they mean within the context, right? Because we may have had a previous discussion. You may be communicating to me something about a situation and using some figurative language, and it's like, okay, I I need to understand what it means within the context of what you're writing, within the day and age, because words today mean something different than what they did 100 years ago. So I need to know the culture a little bit and the history, right? And so we are looking to understand what's called authorial intent, intent, Okay, we're looking to understand what the author intended to say. That's one of the areas of the rules of, of understanding any piece of writing, right? especially the Bible, and we would call that hermeneutics. And so when we approach Scripture, we're trying to understand it as objectively as possible. We believe that it's clear that God knows how to communicate because he's the author of language itself. And if God is perfect and omniscient and all-powerful and sovereign over all things, can he not use men to communicate his truth to us very clearly in a manner in which he wants us to understand it without error and infallible? Right, and so therefore he communicates that truth. Our job is simply what study it, so we can understand what he's saying. But it's not—it's not subjective. It's not subjective. It doesn't vary. See, this is—we live in a postmodern world, right? We live in a world in which your truth is not my truth. I mean, some of you followed, I don't want to get political, but there was a phrase that uh, a senator said in this most recent episode, you know, with Judge Kavanaugh and all of that. And they, they kept saying, I heard multiple times, that, that the doctor, Christine Ford, from this area, I guess, or teaching here, but she came out and said her truth. They kept saying that. She spoke her truth. They never said she spoke the truth. And I'm not saying she didn't speak the truth, but the point is the phraseology that they used. The phraseology that they used was she spoke her truth because we live in a postmodern world that says your truth isn't necessarily my truth and isn't necessarily your truth, right? But no, when we, we believe in what's called propositional truth. Propositional truth just means it's truth, just truth is truth, right? Because it's God's truth. 2 plus 2 is 4 in Germany or Honduras or, or San Francisco or wherever you are, right? It's 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 propositional truth. It's just the way it is. God is God, Jesus is God no matter where you are, right? And that and that but what happens with experience as a source of truth is that experience comes in and what introduces subjectivity. Okay? Yeah, this this angel, the God came and spoke to me last night and well, what are you supposed to say you know uh, okay i don't believe you but okay <laughs> you know I, I don't know really what to tell you and so in that sense the man with the doctrine is at the mercy of the man with the experience also experience by itself doesn't prove any point objectively right it doesn't prove any point objectively it's just an experience i mean okay so i heard a noise you know what that means it means you heard a noise doesn't mean anything, right? It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean anything. So you heard a noise. An, an example from the medical world is this, and, and I'll say this at some risk because some of you may like the, the, the world of natural medicine, et cetera, and I'm not against that, but I'm just using this as an example. But in, in the world of medicine, there, is, there are what they call, you guys have heard of this, placebo-controlled double-blind studies, right? And what is that? It's where they have a medicine and they have a sugar pill, And the doctor doesn't know what he's giving, and the patient doesn't know what they're getting, right? And so you have this test that's done, and the whole idea is, as scientifically as possible, you're trying to see, does this pill work or not? Does it solve the medical problem or not? And so as objectively as possible, not being skewed by something the doctor might say or something the patient might think, because nobody knows which one you're getting. They're the same color, the same size. Everything's tried to be the same. You have this study, and the idea is to try and get proven evidence, objective data. That's different than what we would call anecdotal evidence. You know what anecdotal evidence is? Anecdotal evidence is evidence through experience. It's not reliable, it's not repeatable, and it's not necessarily trustworthy. It doesn't mean that it's wrong, okay? It doesn't mean that, okay, I took this natural remedy and it really helped me. Or my Aunt Tia says, right, I took this natural thing and it really helped me. Okay, that's great. And it, maybe it did. Maybe it did. That's great. There's no problem. But all of that is, is, it's an anecdote. It's a story. Okay, it's, a, it's not proven evidence. It's not a study with 5,000 people where half of them took the pill and the other half took a sugar pill, and you found out, oh, okay, objectively, here's the data. That's kind of the way experience is. It introduces subjectivity. Well, that's great that that worked for you, and praise the Lord for that but it doesn't mean that that's an effective treatment for this medical illness all throughout the world, because when you do an actually objective study, you may find out, well, no, it worked for you because of this, but for all these other people, it's not gonna work. In fact, it could be toxic or problematic, and we don't want that, right? And so it's a whole idea of subjectivity. So when you think of experience, we just need to remember it's a poor source of truth, why? Because it's very subjective, and it doesn't come with its own interpretation. You know, words, context, what the Word of God has to say, it's clear. You, you can study, you can study the grammar, and it's going to have a defined meaning by the author. It's just our job to try and understand that. That's different than the subjectivity that experience introduces. Reason and rationality. What can we say about reason and rationality? This isn't all going to be just a, a talk. We are going to look at the Word of God to kind of help us through this. But with reason and ration, rationality, in general, the Bible is both reasonable and rational okay in general the bible is both reasonable and rational meaning that what happens is reasonable and it makes sense okay it makes sense it's it's logical we might say however depending on your presuppositions and your worldview there are things in scripture which will not seem necessarily reasonable or rational what do we mean by these things what do we mean by presuppositions presuppositions are those things that you carry into any argument or any discussion any debate okay and we we as believers i believe there are different types of what they call apologetics i I would lean towards a presuppositional apologetic and by that i mean this some people will say one some people will say two but every believer has i believe two presuppositions okay the first one is the existence of the god of the bible Okay, not just his existence, but the God of the Bible is God. Okay? The Bible never tries to explain that. right? Because the first four words of the Bible are what? In the beginning, never tries to explain where in the world he came from. How in the world he got to be God. Never tries to explain that. It's just in the beginning, God. Okay? That's a presupposition. And so everyone has presuppositions. Right? Everyone has presuppositions, because we believe, in the beginning, somebody. Other people believe, in the beginning, something. It's their presupposition. They would say, in the beginning, a thing. I would say, in the beginning, a person. And that person is God. Right? They have a different presupposition than I do, and they carry that into the debate, into the discussion right? And so we all have those presuppositions. The second presupposition is that the word of God is truth, okay? And we believe that because this God said, your word is truth, John 17, 17, right? One of our favorite Iwana verses because it's so short and easy to memorize, right? So John 17, 17, 17, your word is truth. We, We believe that. We take that as a presupposition, okay? And so Depending on your worldview and your presupposition, your worldview is just the carrying out of what your doctrinal belief is. That we, we we may run into problems with our reasoning as a source of truth or our, our ability to rationalize as a source of truth. What are some examples? Well, supernatural. Okay. Some people, some people, and they have different presuppositions than I do. But some people say, really you believe that like this big fish actually like swallowed this guy and then puked him up three days later and he was still alive really you, you believe that the first time i was introduced to somebody that didn't believe that at least to my awareness i was in residency and talking to an er doc who i had worked with before when i had worked as a as an underling in that hospital and he just he said he was a christian i was like all right cool so i tried to start strike up a conversation with him and then somehow we got on the discussion of jonah and he's like No, no, no. You believe that? No. He was anti-supernatural, right? Because it's, you know, come on. It's just not reasonable. It's just not rational. I mean, what what kind of people think that miracles actually happened in the Bible? No, those are just stories. They're stories to communicate a truth, but they're not truth. Okay, it's not, the Bible's not inerrant in that sense. That didn't really happen. It's just a way in which God could prepare us to understand uh, some concept of redemption later on, or who knows what, the way in which he wanted to save Israel in that time, or whatever their interpretation is. Because again, when they start denying the perspicuity of Scripture, and they start denying what Scripture actually says, what comes in? Subjectivity. So they're going to say, well, it means this. And somebody else is going to say, well, it really means that. Well, no, it really means this. Well, maybe it just means that this big fish swallowed this guy and puked him up three days later. Because God wanted to work on his heart to go and preach the gospel to Nineveh? Maybe that's all it means, right? And we gain further understanding of its meaning when Christ preached and and said about his own resurrection, right? And so they start introducing that. And and for some people, because their presuppositions are different, they don't believe in the God, the omniscient, uh, all-powerful God of the Bible, they'll say, well, I don't believe in the supernatural things of the Bible either because it's not reasonable, it's not rational, okay other people don't believe necessarily in the sovereignty of god and the responsibility of man but even there for us we have a presupposition where we accept the god as the bible we accept that the word of god is truth and yet the word of god teaches what teaches that god is sovereign we are not robots but we still have responsibility I, i am one who doesn't believe that we have totally free will i believe that our decisions are real that's different the reason i say i don't believe we have totally free will and what i'm saying with that is this if we were to choose what does romans 3 tell us 10 through 12 we're going to choose sin every time that doesn't sound very free to me that doesn't sound very free to me what that tells me is i'm a slave to sin like romans 6 says right is that free no it's a slave to sin see we're made to be slaves it doesn't mean our decisions aren't real our decisions are real our prayers are real. We have a responsibility to pray, right? And interesting enough, the Bible teaches both. The Bible teaches that God is sovereign, and yet we are still responsible for our decisions. How does that work out in your reasoning? In my head, it goes like this. I don't know. I can't explain that, you know. Maybe Pastor Steve can, but I doubt it, yeah. He's a good pastor because he says, no, I can't. (laughs) No, we can't. It, It doesn't fit with our reasoning. But praise the Lord, our reasoning is not our ultimate authority, right? Our reasoning submits to what? To what Scripture says. We submit to the authority of what Scripture says. And so, you know, hey, God is sovereign and I'm still responsible. I don't fully get it. I don't really fully understand how prayer works. Don't really understand how salvation works because of that. But I believe it. And I believe it's the truth. Why? Because your word is truth. And not my reasoning. My reasoning has to submit to what Scripture says. So our reasoning and our rationality is not a good, it's not a good source for truth. You know, it's not reliable, and we're going to see why. Another one example is theodicy, right? The problem of the existence of evil if God is good and all powerful. Why is there evil if God is good and he's all powerful can change anything why does evil exist you know people people struggle with that well we can understand why it exists in the bible for a number of different reasons one is our own sinfulness two is the purposes of god and his plan right his decree but if if somebody doesn't accept what scripture says as their authority and they simply in their reasoning see that they're going to see another another collision between those concepts right between those principles so what are God's purposes in reason and rationality? Why, why are our reasoning and our rationality important? Well, one is simply to understand divine revelation in order to know God. You know, again, in general, Scripture is reasonable and rational. It makes sense. It's logical. What God's plan is doing, especially as believers, when we have the benefit of the illumination of the Holy Spirit to help us understand what Scripture says, it's like, okay, yeah, I get it. It makes sense. It makes sense what God is doing here, right? Now, I don't understand everything because I'm not God, but it it does make sense. Also, what are God's purposes and reason and rationality is to make application of divine revelation, right? Logically, we want to explain. Oftentimes, when I'm sharing the gospel, I'll draw this little line, and I'll say, this is your life, and I'll put all these little X marks of sins. I'll say, sin, 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 and then I'll look at the person, I'll I'll go, sin, 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 you know? Sin, 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 you know, all these sins. I mean, and and usually it's not hard to convince somebody they're a sinner. Most people, yeah, 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 I'm a sinner. And then you ask them the question, well, how many times does it, it, how many times do you have to sin to be a sinner? Uh, Just once. Yeah, exactly. You know what? It's even worse than that. Because the Bible tells us that by nature we're sinners, in Psalm fifty-one, five, right? David says that at the moment of conception, I was born in sin. He's not talking about his mother; he's talking about him. You know, he was born in sin, which means he has a he has a nature that's sinful, and, and you can explain that to him from Scripture, Romans five, twelve, and other passages. And then, oh yeah, and and he explained the problem. Well, you know, the wages of sin is what death and we have a holy and righteous God. He can't tolerate sin. But I say in my little timeline, I'll draw my little line and put sin, 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 sin. But I say, you know, one day, one day, let's draw a line. This is that day. You decided, I am never going to sin again. I am going to obey what the Word of God says. Because usually when you ask them about how to be saved, what is their answer? Well, I'm trying to obey what the Word of God says, and I'm really trying to you know, go to church now, and I'm trying to... And the only person they ever talk about in their answer is I, 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 right? They never mention Jesus because they oftentimes don't really know the true gospel yet, right? And so I'm, I'm trying to do this, trying to do that. And so you go through that, and you say, well, so if from this day on, let's just say for the rest of your life you never sin again, ever. Of course, we all laugh and say, yeah, like that's going to happen, right? But no, you never sin again just say for argument that happens does that solve your problem exactly and, and everyone sees that it's reasonable it's rational they say well no that doesn't solve my problem because I've already sinned in fact I don't even have to sin at all and I've got a problem with God yeah that's right and I always ask them so how are you going to solve that problem how are you going to correct that problem well And they try, and then finally, I just keep asking, because there's only so many answers to that question. Usually it's all the same answer, obedience, and I'm trying to do something to please God. It's a works doctrine. And ultimately, what happens? Ultimately, I don't know. I can't do anything. Yes, that's the answer, right? That's the answer. No, you're right, you can't do anything. You need help from someone outside of you. You need someone else's righteousness, right? That's the gospel. You need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because, and we're all in the same boat. It's not like I'm any different than you or you're any different than me. We're all in the same boat, right? We're just all that way. But when you present it like that, people can see it and it, it makes sense. It's like, well, yeah, yeah, it's logical. So in general, Scripture is rational. It's reasonable. But there are things that, yeah, God knows more than we do. He's infinite. We're not. And, and for those things, we just have to bow, bend the knee, right? Bow before Scripture, before Him and His Word, and say, "Okay, God, I accept. I accept what You say, because I. It doesn't make sense for me, but that's okay. It doesn't doesn't have to, right? And so, to uh, as we make application of that divine revelation, as we communicate, like in the illustration we just had, as we communicate God's revelation to others. Uh, Those are some of the purpose that God has in our capacity to reason and to be rational, right? That's, That's a good thing. He's given us our minds for a reason. But there are dangers with reason, dangers with rationalism as a source of truth. It doesn't mean that tradition is bad. Tradition is fine. It's just not a good source of truth. It doesn't mean that experiences are bad. We all have experiences every moment of every day. They're fine. It's just as a source of truth, it's not a good source of truth. And and reason and rationality as a source of truth, it's not a good source of truth because it minimizes the depravity of the mind, right? It somehow says, you know, if we have reason and rationality as our source of truth, it somehow says, well, I know it says that in the Bible, but it doesn't make sense to me, so therefore I'm not going to accept that. And what does it do? Just like tradition, it lowers the authority of Scripture, it puts our minds our fallen minds above scripture and saying well god i know what you say but that doesn't work for me does that sound very bright (laughs) not to me not to me right and so we can't put reason above that because it minimizes the depravity of our minds what's called the noetic effect of sin okay that just comes from has nothing to do with noah has comes from the greek word that has to do with the mind okay Uh, it's the effect on the mind of sin and it minimizes the finiteness of the human mind, right? We understand Deuteronomy 29.29. 29. You know, some things we get to understand, the rest of it's for God to know. And that, that's basically what Deuteronomy 29.29 29 tells us. So, so the idea of having reason and rationality as a source of truth, it minimizes our finiteness in comparison with the infinis- infiniteness of God, and it minimizes that incomprehensibility of God. What is incomprehensibility? Okay, it has an H there in the middle. Incomprehensibility. What is that? That is this. We can understand many things about God, but we can't comprehend God. Not in His totality. Not in His totality. God in His grace has given us special revelation. He's given us general revelation. And we can understand many things about our God. It's not that we can't understand God and understand what He's doing and who He is and His attributes and and His plan. We can understand all. So many of those things, because he's communicated that to us effectively through general revelations, for some of it, and the majority of it through special revelation, which is the word of God. But can we comprehend this, God? No, we cannot. In fact, that really is the definition of the word holy, right? The word holy. Sometimes we think of holy as, oh, God's without sin. Well, that's part of it, but that's not all of it. Literally, you know what the word holy means? It means other. He, he's separate he he's different than us he not like us he's different right he's different he's completely different than we are he's just not like us. i was almost going to use ain't but my mom the grammar teacher would have gotten on me for that so i didn't say that no he, he's not like us he's just not like us and he's different than us and so he is incomprehensible and when we start saying well but my reasoning can somehow put god in his place how foolish how foolish. There is no fear of God in that, right? And the, and the Bible says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, right? And so there is no fear of God in that because somehow we think that our, our, our reasoning can stand in authority over the word of God. It cannot. It cannot. There's another quote from J.I. Packer. Let me just read it to you. It's very good. He says, the role of reason is to act as a servant to the written word of God. So he's saying, word of God, servant, right, beneath it seeking independence upon the Spirit to interpret the Scripture correctly, to correlate its teaching and to discern its application for all parts of life. And we should not look to reason so that it might tell us if the Scripture is correct in what it says. Again, it's not a good source of truth to say, hmm, is the Scripture right or not? Reason is not competent in any case to make such a judgment. Our our reason, our capacity to reason and rationality, it's not competent to do that because of our sinfulness, our finiteness. Rather, we have to look to Scripture to tell us if our reasoning is correct and what it thinks about subjects that the Scripture deals with. In other words, boy, I don't, I don't like the fact that this hurricane came through and is killing people. Yeah, it's tough, especially if it's your family member. But that doesn't allow me to say God is a bad God. That doesn't allow me to say God is not good. That doesn't allow me to say God is not all-powerful because there's evil in the world. There's the effects of sin in the world because of things like that. When somebody loses a child, you know, those are hard times. But those are the times when, as MacArthur says, when when we lean hard against theology, we lean hard against doctrine. Why? Because that's the only source of truth that we have. And we're looking for truth in those moments. God, help me understand what's going on because I don't get it. My baby just died right? We have to look hard for that truth, and our reasoning, our rationality, God, I just can't accept this. No, we have to submit to what God tells us in his word, right? Okay, you guys have to listen faster, because we only have about, I can go to 830, you said, is that okay? Is that okay? Whatever. All right, I'll t- okay. <laughs> All right, general revelation. General revelation is another source of truth, and general revelation is a source of truth. It is a limited source of truth, Okay? But there's much confusion about it as a source of truth. And that's the reason that we, we have it here. I want to take a moment to look at what general revelation truly is. What, what is general revelation and what is its purpose? Often within the church, it is made equivalent to modern science. Okay? Often in the church, they will uh, equilibrate, or whatever that word is, modern science with general revelation. All that science can discover is general revelation that many people would suggest and how how do they get to that what are they what are they saying well they start with this they start oftentimes with this mantra all truth is god's truth okay so what they're saying is they're kind of taking this idea of propositional truth propositional truth would be two plus two is four god is god jesus is god okay those are truths that they just are it's just the truth right It's just a fact. It's a reality. It doesn't change no matter who you are, where you're from, where you live, when you lived, uh, what you look like, what your culture is. None of that matters. These are just truths. And they would say, well, all truth is God's truth because God is a God of truth, right? And the Bible backs that up. And so there's a sense in which, okay, yeah, that's true because all truth is God's truth because God is the creator of all things. And if something is true, it's true because he made it true. Right? And so in that sense, it's true. But, but they kind of get in, into problems when they say all truth that science can discover is God's truth. okay? Because, again, truth is truth. So when science, whether that be science of nature or science of the body in the world of medicine or the science of psychology or psychiatry, when it discovers a truth about the reality of human existence or the reality of nature, then it will determine that, hmm, that's a truth. Well, and all truth is God's truth, right? So as truth, it must be a reasonable source of authority uh, uh, for truth, right? It must be a reasonable source for truth because truth is truth. Right? There's no the truth is truth. We, we can't vary between the two things. And so what they conclude... Okay, say we conclude, but really they conclude is two equal forms of revelation on the same level, and what and they define general revelation in a different way as we'll see here in just a minute. So they'll say the Bible, okay, special revelation, deals with our relationship with God, okay, but science, considered as general revelation according to them, is the source of truth for understanding man. In the physical world, God's creation, the origins of the world, the social interactions, etc. Okay, So the Bible is God's special revelation. That deals with our interaction, our relationship with God. But if we want to understand things of this world, things of man, things of creation, things of the origins of this world, right? then we have to, uh, we have to look to science for that because that is going to help us, or at least the things that we learn in science, we can integrate with the truth of the Bible because here we have... The Bible, that's truth. Your word is truth. But we also have these things of science, and that's truth. And that's, that's part of God's general revelation to us, they would say. And so the result is what we would call integrationism. Okay, integrationism. The word integrate, what does that mean? What does the word integrate mean? To bring together, kind of mix together, right? And so what they do is they integrate the authority of Scripture with the authority of science. And they say, well, this is general revelation, science, and this is scripture. We've kind of seen this before, haven't we? With tradition, experience, reason, right? It lowers the authority of scripture and raises the authority of something else and oftentimes puts it above the authority of scripture. But we find that there are problems with that. The result is integrationism, which is an intent to combine the truth of, of science with The truth of Scripture. And what are some examples of that? Well, when people look at the study of origins, they'll come up with something called evolutionary creationism, right? Well, we know clearly from science, right? We are men, women of science. We know clearly from science that evolution is a fact because, I mean, it's just the data is clear, right? And so, therefore, as we look to Scripture to understand Scripture, I hope you can hear the sarcasm in my voice. But as we look to Scripture to understand Scripture, what happens? We have to say, well, we have this truth from science about evolution. We know that's true. And and for many of those folks, they don't believe in supernatural of the Bible, and so it's not hard for them to do this. But they say, well, you know, maybe when the Bible says there was evening and morning the first day and evening and morning the second day and... Up to day six, maybe that doesn 't actually mean like a twenty four hour period, although when you read it it 's pretty clear that it means a twenty four hour period because the perspicuity of scripture, right? the Bible is clear in what it says, and it seems pretty clear that God created the world in six days, and if he is God, not that hard for him to do that, you know, at least not for the God of the Bible, not for my god it 's not that hard for him to do that but no, no, see actually what they 'll say no these these days actually mean like millennia, like, like millions of years, right? Millions of years. And so, um, and so we, we can actually integrate evolution with the Bible. And so we can have evolutionary creationism. Yeah, God got it all started, so he's the creator, but he did it through a process of evolution. It wasn't just uh, that he, he spoke every day and something new appeared. Right? It, it wasn't that way. And so uh, you start to end up with ideas like that. You end up with ideas like the study of human behavior and you start to integrate what Freud said and Skinner said and others said in the world of psychology and psychiatry with the word of God. And so you take these theories of men who are self-attested atheists, who don't believe in scripture, and you try and say that they somehow are on par in their authority of truth with what the word of God says. And does that not happen within the church today? It does. In fact, the most churches will do that. You know, Well, your, your problem is you don't love yourself enough. You don't have enough self-esteem. Even the Bible kind of says the exact opposite. In fact, the way it defines the way we should love our wives is we should try and love them in the way that we love ourselves because we love ourselves way too much in the first place. Right? The comparison, when I love God and love others, you're supposed to do that in the way that you love yourself. Why? Because, again, loving ourselves is no problem. Okay? And so you have this countering theory concept that's exactly against what the word of god says and yet they'll say but that's the general revelation of god and so that therefore it has to be on par with the special revelation of god but th- they're significant we see that too in the in the in the justice system uh, of today you know we're, we're interested in rehabbing because at heart all men are actually good not sinful that's the basis of our of our current justice system right we're, we're interested in rehab we're not interested in justice and I'm not saying that people can't be improved, and I'm not saying that everyone needs to commit a crime, you have to stay in jail the rest of your life. No, it's just that the mentality behind it is errant because in the history of our country, those ideas have come in and they've integrated it with what the Word of God has to say, and they've accepted those. So, real quickly, let's, let's look at some scriptures to try and, and finish our time here in the next 15 minutes. Psalm 19, Psalm 19 and I've got some questions for you. So, this will be your chance to to interact with me here. It says in Psalm 19, we're mostly going to look at the first part. Oftentimes, we really focus on the second part of the Psalm, which is great because that's the part that talks about special revelation, right, and how wonderful and valuable it is. But if we're really trying to understand general revelation, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And so we see here, right at the beginning, uh, a statement that actually fits perfectly with what general revelation is. In Psalm 19, that is our source to understand that the concept of general revelation is biblical. There is a general revelation about God. Romans chapter 1 is is the other main passage looked at and we'll look at that briefly. But we're not going to look at this whole passage but just in verse 1, it says the heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. I'm going to go ahead and read the verse, six verses. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, there are no words, whose voice is not heard. And so what that's saying is that every day there's this message coming to us from the creation of God, right, that is communicating something to us repeatedly, every day, to every person, in every place, in every time where they've ever lived, there's this message. But this message doesn't have words. It's not an audible voice, right? That's what it says. There is no speech. There are no words. There, there, nobody's, it's not, hey, I'm here. No, we hear nothing. But yet, there is this communication that's happening. And we have an example of what that is in the next, in the next verses. It says, their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And so nobody, nobody gets a pass on this. Okay? Everybody is exposed to this general revelation, and it says, In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Now, what, what is verse 5 and 6 saying? Real simple. It's really not that hard. Here's what it's saying. All right, how many of you guys are married? Okay. Okay. So we're talking about the bridegroom here. So we're just going to talk about the guys here, right? Guys think different than gals, right? I mean, we all agree with that. Guys are weird, right? We're just different. So when a guy gets up in the morning of his wedding day, right? Yeah, he he gets it. (laughs) He's thinking one thing. And he's just thinking, okay, tonight I will be with my bride. You know, in all that that means. Okay, tonight I will be with my bride. Okay? And he is going to march off to the chapel, to the church, right? Ain't nobody going to stop him. There I said, ain't. Nobody going to stop him. I am going to get my bride. I am leaving my bedchamber. I am going to get my bride. You try and stop me. Not going to happen. Not going to happen, right? What the Word of God is telling us there is every day, the sun comes up, the sun goes down. The sun comes up, the sun goes down. The sun comes up. The sun goes down. You're going to stop it? I'm not going to, I can't stop it. God did once. But we can't, right? The sun comes up. The sun goes down every day, right? Just like that, that bridegroom, try and stop me, right? Try and stop the sun from coming up and going down. You can't, right? You can't. And through that, God is communicating something to us. I'm here. I'm a God of order. I'm a powerful God. Right? What are all these things? I exist. I'm sovereign. I'm wise. I'm the creator. I like order. I'm, I'm just. There are consequences for decisions. You can see that in there. He wants to manifest himself to us. He's powerful, intelligent. He's able to communicate to us through general revelation. Okay? Now, general revelation is not as specific as specific revelation, but we see that it is communicating something about God, right? His existence is all all powerfulness. We can in fact keep your thumb or your finger in Psalm 19, if we pop over to Romans chapter 1, we see the same thing. It says the it says the same thing. We're very familiar with these verses. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 I'm almost there. There we go. Okay. Says this. Says, for the wrath of God. Sorry, I don't have my glasses on. Is that verse 18? Yeah, it is. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known, here we go, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So the first thing we can learn is that the issue of being an atheist, the issue of denying God is not a a knowledge issue. It's not an information problem. It's not an intelligence issue. Because what that's telling us is every man knows God exists through general revelation. Every one of us knows, even the atheist who says, I don't believe in God. Yes, you do. You just won't admit it. It's a spiritual issue because you suppress the truth in your unrighteousness, but it's not an information issue because the general revelation is there. It's obvious. I mean, the orderliness of this world, the fact that, I mean, come on. In the beginning, something? Come on. In the beginning, someone. It's the only thing that fits, right? So, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely... His eternal power and His divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. And so, general revelation leaves us without excuse as it communicates about about God. But see, this is the last point that we want to make about general revelation. And that is this. If you go back to Psalm chapter 19... It says, the heavens declare the glory of the origins of man, right? That's what it says, right? The heavens declare the, or, the glory of the origins of man? No. Okay. Sorry. The, the heavens declare the glory of the psychological nature of man. No? The, the heavens declare the glory of that man is by nature good. No. What does it say? the heavens declare the glory of god and even if we had the time we could we could point out that this word for god here is the word el which in the hebrew refers to that god almighty over all the universe okay as opposed when you're talking about special revelation it uses that word that we know jave yahweh, yahweh right which is that personal name between god and his people so when he talks about his word he uses his personal name but when he's talking about general revelation he's using his name as i am the creator don't mess with me so to speak that's not what god says that's what rob says but it's that idea right i am i am the all-powerful one just like we read in romans chapter one and so the heavens declare the glory not of humans not of human nature general revelation has nothing to do with us And therefore, it has nothing to do with the science of the study of humankind, the science of the study of nature, the science of the study of anything about this creation. What general revelation has to do with, what the sun is telling us when it crosses every day, is information about God. General revelation is about God. General revelation has to do with God, not man and not science. And so, that's the first error that they make. They try and make it about ourselves and therefore they try and put it as a source of truth with these worldly things, these worldly sciences, etc. And not that science is bad. I believe science proves the existence of God. I believe science proves the Bible to be true. It's just we interpret it incorrectly. right? And so we see that the general revelation is about God. And not all truth has the same authority. right? Because to perceive general revelation, we need to perceive it with the wisdom of the Word of God, right? We need to make our conclusions, uh, our interpretations about what General Revelation is saying through Scripture. Truths of science versus the truths of Scripture. Your word is truth puts God's word here. My understanding of what General Revelation says has to submit to the Word of God again, right? One more time. Just like my reason, just like whatever tradition I want, it has to submit to the Word of God, right? It has to do that there are different levels of certitude, right? What is that? Well, it, your word is truth. Science, it's here today and changes tomorrow, right? When I was in medical school, they said, I had a, this obstetrician guy, gynecologist, they ought to put estrogen in the water. This was before before the data came out, not long afterwards, when I was in residency. And, but in medical school, they, said, oh, they ought to have estrogen in the water, it's so good. Every woman should be on estrogen, estrogen, estrogen. Of course then, just a few years later, estrogen is not that helpful especially for your heart and it creates other issues and problems right science changes the certitude the certainty of what science says is is not the same level of certainty as the word of god the word of god doesn't change it's god doesn't change it's true it's true today tomorrow yesterday it'll be true forever it's true no matter who you are no matter where you come from no matter where you live no matter when you lived it's true The propositional truth of the Bible has the highest level of certitude or certainty due to the inspiration of Scripture because it's the word of God, right? I don't have time to give you this great example of the black licorice, sorry. We'll save that for another day. But it helps us to understand how it is that we can know. The short of it is this. We know that God's word is truth because God tells us this is truth. It's a propositional truth, okay? Special revelation has a greater value of authority than general revelation, Not all truth falls on receptive ears. Uh, We already said that in Romans chapter 1. The truth of general revelation conserves its truthful condition only when it is received by non-existent infallible human beings. In other words, we can understand exactly what God's trying to tell us in general revelation if we are infallible and we're perfect. But we're not, and so we don't fully understand all the details of what he's doing in general revelation. But we understand some of it because we have passages like Psalm 19 and and Romans 1. In special revelation to help us understand that. That's what that's trying to say. The truth of Scripture is by nature propositional, right? It is true no matter where you are, when you are, who you are. Scripture is illuminated by the Holy Spirit. We can understand it through the help of God. The purposes of general revelation are not directly related to systematic theology. And one, our understanding of interpretation must be in accord with inspired scripture, correctly interpreted. In other words, if we want to look at general revelation to learn things, we have to understand it in the context of what scripture says, okay? As you read through all of these, the last one is general revelation is sufficient to condemn but not sufficient to save. Because what does it say in in Romans 1.20? The without excuse. General revelation will condemn us, but it can't save us. Because we need to know about Jesus Christ. And where do we learn about Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior? In special revelation, right? In special revelation. So let, let's complete our time just talking about the Bible. Two minutes, and we, can, we, can't, we can't do this, but we're going to take seven minutes, okay? First of all, the Bible is the complete source of, source of truth. It is the complete source of truth, right? What does 1 Timothy three sixteen and 17 tell us? right? It says that it is inspired by God. It is inspired by God. Yeah, I'm at that point of my language learning where I can't remember things in English or Spanish, verses that I used to know in English. I now kind of partly know in Spanish, and uh, and so I, I just have to look up almost every verse nowadays uh, to try and help help me keep my mind straight. But in, in Second Timothy chapter 3, Verses 16 and 17, All Scripture is breathed out by God, literally God breathed it and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God might be completely equipped for every good work. Why? Because it's the, it's the complete, it's the, it's the unique source of truth, right? And therefore, we can, we can be made complete through that. We can be made mature spiritually. The relationship between proper biblical exegesis and systematic theology our truth comes from the word of god right exegesis ek, means from right so exegesis we get our truth from scripture and meta where we teach we teach that from our proper understanding of scripture we develop what's called a biblical theology a biblical theology you've got definitions there which you can look at in your own time to help understand that and if you don't pastor steve can help you understand it because i know he does Um, But biblical theology is just basically, what does the Word of God say, and then how do we formulate our beliefs from that, okay? Uh, What does Paul say about faith? What what does um, James say about faith? Okay, let's put those together and form a systematic theology, Okay, let's form a systematic theology. So that, that's the difference between a biblical theology and a systematic theology. A systematic th- theology just means this. You've got your listing there of the different types of theologies beneath systematic theology. Systematic, a good th- systematic theology just means this. My bibliology works with my theology proper. And my theology proper works with my Christology. And my Christology works with my pneumatology and my anthropology and my martyology and my soteriology and my angelology. In my ecclesiology, my eschatology. It all works together. It's not contradictory, right? That's a good systematic theology. And if we base it upon what the Word of God says, guess what? You're going to have a good systematic theology. But we have to look at scripture, we have to interpret it in the proper way, following good rules of hermeneutics, so that we're understanding what? The author's intent, right? And then we're going to end up with good doctrine right? Good doctrine. Instead of saying, well, the three angels were in my room again last night, and they had something to tell me, and I know the Bible doesn't say that, but yeah, that's not helpful, right? I want to I finish by just looking at Second Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. I want to I point something out to you there, and, uh, and I'll try and give you the rest of these fill in the blanks for those that are filling it in. Sorry, I just had this desire to give you lots of information today, and Uh, praise the lord for it Um, because it's all very founded in scripture Um, second peter chapter one just want to look at these these last few verses verses 19 through 21 and then we'll go back and and look at actually we'll go ahead and and read somebody else willing to read verses uh, 16 through 21 through the end of the chapter anybody anybody okay ken thanks there you go. Uh, for we did not follow cleverly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father, with a voice of the majestic glory said to him, This is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this voice from heaven when we were with him on the Holy Mountain. We also have the message of the prophets, which has been confirmed on down, and you will do well to pay attention to this message as to a lamp shining in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever brought about through human initiative, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Thank you. Uh, you know the ESV has a good interpretation of that when they say carried along that's a sometimes versions say inspired most of the Spanish versions say inspired the men weren't inspired the Bible is inspired it's, it's the text that's inspired not the men okay and and so th- this is a, a proper understanding because it's a different word than the word inspired in reality and it means like carried along by a by a ship or a train or something of that effect but I wanted to focus, because we can't look at this entire passage, but I want to focus on verse 19. It says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention. Okay? Um, what, 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 is, what is happening here and what Peter is saying? If we had time, you can go through this entire chapter, and you find out this entire chapter is talking about the word of God as the source of truth. The entire chapter is talking about the word of God as the source of truth. And it, but the, the, pace, the place where it, it really really hinges, in, in my understanding of the passage, is that we have this prophetic word, speaking of Scripture, okay, and we can look back in the chapter to find out just to be sure, and even beyond that to say, yeah, that, that's talking about the Bible. We have the prophetic word, the Bible, more fully confirmed is, is, what, is what the um, ESV says. I actually like the New American Standard a little better there. It says, more sure. Okay, more sure, more secure is what it would say in the Spanish versions, which is, which is very good, maybe even better. Okay, so we have the Bible more secure, more sure. Okay, what, what is it doing there? Well, if, if, we, if we study that, that, that word there, it's actually there's only one word there in the Greek. There's only one word there. It's not two words, it's not more and sure, it's not more fully, right, uh, more fully confirmed, it's not more secure. It's actually just one word. And when you study that one word, there's two ways to understand that, and that's what I gave you right here. And and you don't have to worry about the technicalities of it, but there's something called uh, predicative and attributive, and that's not really that, uh, that important. But the important thing is, in the one, if you understand it the first way, it would mean this. Scripture is confirmed by Peter's testimony and that of the other apostles. In other words, it's saying this. We have a sure word of God. We have the word of God, and it is sure. Okay, It says something about the noun. It says something about the word of God in this case. We have the word. It's sure. It's a sure word of God. Okay, And that's true. But I would suggest to you that's not what it's saying. That's not what it's saying. It's actually making a comparison. Peter is making a comparison, that it's comparative. And the context tells us what Peter is doing, and we're going to see it very clearly. It is, because what, what it actually is saying is what the New American Standard says, what the, the Spanish versions say. It, it seems to me like the ESB kind of equivocates just a little bit in its interpretation here. I like the idea of more secure, more sure, better, because what it says exactly that, is that we have the word of God, more sure. Now, we all know in, in English, when we introduce the word more, what's that doing? It's, it's comparing something, okay? And what I'm telling you is the word more is not, As a word, it's actually not there in the Greek. But as we understand how that word sure or secure is being used, we understand that it's comparative. Because we we have a comparison within this text, and I want to point that out to you. We have a comparison between the Word of God and something else that happened with Peter. And so the conclusion of Peter is this. The Word of God, the prophetic Word of God, this written Bible that we have is more... Sure, it's more secure. So we have to ask ourselves, more secure than what? More secure There's a comparison, all right? Well, what are we comparing? And so let me take you back to verses 16 through 18. And let me ask you the question. You, You guys can answer this for me. It says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made it known to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Who's we? Okay, Peter. And the apostles, okay? And as we're going to see here in just a minute, it actually may just be three of the apostles. Okay? Three of the apostles, Peter, James, and John, because we're about to see the context of what he's referring to in the next verse. Okay, so Peter and the Apostles is a correct answer, and maybe even Peter and some specific apostles. right? In fact, one of them also gave testimony in the same way in his book of 1 John, in the first chapter. He says. He says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Said, we didn't even make this stuff up. Okay? He's telling them, Look, we didn't, what, what we told you happened, interesting, in an experience. Right? It's an experience. We already said experience isn't a great source of truth. Uh, it's not a great source of authority. But he said, We didn't make this stuff up. This really happened. It wasn't just myths and fables. All right? And I don't know about you. I, I think I do know about you. I, I believe Peter. And actually, I believe his experience was real because Scripture tells us it was real. But we have to see, okay, what, what was his experience? He says, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Who's his? Christ, right, in Jesus' majesty. He said, for, we receive, for he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by, by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased and we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. What's he talking about? You know it. The Mount of Transfiguration. What happened? Peter, James, John had this amazing experience. Right? It wasn't just three angels showing up in their bedroom at night. Right? They saw Jesus Christ transfigured transformed into his fully glorified state because if you and i were alive at the time of jesus when he was on earth he would look just like one of us you know natural guy but we know that he is also god okay and so what peter james and john got to see was jesus christ revealing i'm god in his full glory I I would ask you, can you imagine that? But I know the answer. No, we cannot. Neither can I. We cannot imagine or fathom God in His full glory. But Peter saw that. He experienced it. He experienced an amazing experience. But you know what he says in the very next verse? And we have the prophetic word, what? More sure. More secure than that amazing true experience that he experienced wasn't a myth wasn't a fable right and so he's saying that the word of god the written word of god and if you read the rest of the chapter you'll see it in the context he's obviously talking about scripture the word of god is more sure than even peter's miraculous experience People today say, oh, I had this amazing experience. I went to heaven. These people, God talked to me. Angels came and spoke to me. Okay, yeah, right. I don't believe you. I believe Peter. He had an amazing experience, but he himself said what? The Bible's more secure. The Bible's more sure, right? It's more. It's confirm- It's comparative. It's comparing what the truth of Scripture as an authority, as a source of truth, to this amazing experience that he had more sure than Peter's vision of the glorified Christ he saw Jesus in all his glory but he says if you want to be assured about what god has to say about his son don't don't just trust in my experience look at this and part of the reason he says earlier is because we have it in our hands because we have it when you have it it means it's in our hands I can read it. I don't have to depend on somebody else. No offense, Pastor Steve, but I don't have to depend on what Pastor Steve says if he starts wavering from what the Bible says, right? He's not going to do that. But as long as he stays faithful to the Word of God, praise the Lord. But if he starts wavering from that, he'd tell you himself, don't listen to me, right? And I'd say the same thing. Don't listen to me either. It's more sure than Peter's vision of the glorified Christ. It's more sure than the true and legitimate experiential revelation of the glory of God to Peter, James, and John. You see, what Peter experienced was revelation. In Honduras, we face this all the time. People, I had a revelation from God, and he wanted me to say this to you. Okay, again, I don't believe you. But Peter did have a revelation from God. In fact, it tells us exactly what God revealed. He said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That is revelation from God. Right? Right? It's revelation from God, and yet this is more secure than any even true revelation that someone will tell you by their experience, right? And it's more sure than Peter's true testimony, the word of man, of hearing the voice of God, of even he heard the voice of God, and yet he, he says, no. You want the source of truth? It's right here. It's right here, right? It's right here. And so this is a church that looks to this book for the source of truth. I hope from tonight you've been encouraged. Sorry, it's a little long, but I hope you've been encouraged that you're on the right path because there only is one source of truth. There's only one source of truth, and it's right here. And you can look at all these other things that other churches and other non-churches look to for truth. It doesn't work. It just doesn't work. We only have the Word of God Let's just close by, let me, let me just read to you the first three verses of chapter 2. Because what you're going to see in the first three verses of chapter 2 is the type of people that don't look to the word of God for their source of truth. What does it say? It says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teaching among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, uh, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. There's people that are going to come and say, You know, I had this experience. God spoke to me. He gave me this revelation. I have the authority to tell you what the Bible says. You don't have the authority to understand the clarity of Scripture. No, this doesn't make sense. You can't accept what the Bible says because it doesn't add up in your reasoning. There are going to be people like that that come to you. They're false prophets, they're false teachers. In fact, they'll even deny what Scripture says, and they'll bring swift destruction upon themselves. Verse 2, And many will follow their sensuality. Because, because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. <laughs> we certainly see that today, right? Amongst all these false preachers and teachers. And in their greed, they will exploit you. <laughs> we see that every day, don't we? And it's not just the Benny Hens of the world. It's the Roman Catholic Church. How much gold do they have? It's ridiculous. They're more interested in money than they are in God. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words and their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. So that's a good warning for us. Let's follow the word of God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I do thank you. Thank you for the goodness of these people to desire to hear your word. Thank you for their joy in understanding what scripture says. And, and Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for helping each and every one of us, Lord, to understand the truth of your word and the importance of having it as our only true source of truth, Lord, the only real source of truth for our lives. We thank you. We pray for your blessings as we each go our separate ways. And some of us that are traveling, just pray for your blessing again for Christoph and Barbara as they travel back to Germany, for safety as they go. And, and Lord, as I go on to Oregon and then on to Honduras, just pray your blessing there as well for each person as they go home tonight. May your hand of blessing be upon them. In Jesus' name, amen.